Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Nick Sherrod of Label Sessions talks to Emmanuel Probst. Emmanuel has wafts of experience in branding, currently the global lead in brand thought leadership at Ipsos, and recently publishing his own book in the art and science of brand transformation. Emmanuel truly believes that to succeed, brands must transform us and the world we live in. Over to Emmanuel and Nick. Good. Okay, so let's let, let's make a start. So Emmanuel, you've got one of these really interesting job titles where it says brand thought leader, and then if you also look through your background, it also says things people, well, terms people might be more used to, like writer and connected to an academic institution. How do you how do you talk about or describe what it is that you do? Yeah, the conduit between my role at Ipsos, my writing, and my role at UCLA is to understand why do people do what they do and how can we build better brands. Um, that's really what keeps me up at night. So at Ipsos, my title, as you said, is Global Lead Brand Thought Leadership. But really what this means is I develop new ideas for Ipsos and its clients. So I work specifically with clients on expanding their brands or bringing new brands to market or developing an ecosystem or understanding the impact of one brand might have on another or how to reposition a brand, how to re-energize a brand and so on and so forth. And my writing is just about this, my latest book, Assemblage, The Art and Science of Brand Transformation. Uh, the starting point for this book is to say brands can no longer just sell products. Brands must also transform people and the world they live in. And how can we create transformative brands? And in my teaching, it's about providing students with the tools they need to create great brands. And in turn, for me to learn from those students on uh, what I described as cultural relevance. That is, how do we make brands culturally relevant in the present environment uh, not just technology and social media, but pop culture and uh, the current discourse, if you will. Okay, so Justin, I want to go into the book in just a second, but first of all, for you, do you remember like where the interest came from? Was it interest in people first, or was it an interest in how brands work? Mm. First, my, my first interest was in visual literacy. And what I mean by this is I was interested in images and pictures. And growing up, I did a lot of black and white photography when I was a teenager. And I was also fascinated with advertising. I used to, uh, ever since I was like 14, 15, I would subscribe to advertising publications. And from there, it, I developed. So the difference between my approach and most people out there is I really start with the individual. And I, would, I wouldn't even say the consumer. Uh, what I mean by this is we have tons of brand strategists and advertising executives out there, and uh, they look at the world in terms of how can I sell more products, which I do that too, of course. But I start from the perspective of the individual. How do people see images? How do people perceive brands? How do people go about a specific mission? Uh, jobs to be done, if you will. And from there, rebuild brands that are successful. Okay, interesting. Okay, so let's pick up some of the language here. You talk about uh, art and science. 
Uh, it's interesting, I guess, in the marketing community just now, there's a lot of people who want it to be very much, or want to articulate a story that's very much more pure science, the data and the, and the kind of the story that's there. And there's some, especially in the UK, I find, but it's, there's also a community that doesn't want to talk about that at all, wants to keep it purely in the kind of art space, the kind of pure creative, big idea. You're talking about art and science being part of your approach. Is that something you do very consciously? And what is it you mean by that? Yeah, very consciously. We need both. And neither is right nor wrong. So the science is going to bring, uh, I'd like to say that I'm in the evidence-based decision-making business. That is, I provide my clients with evidence that supports the decision or the decisions plural, that they're about to make. Conversely, the art matters in terms of the emotions, the intuition, the empathy, all those dimensions that science, in my opinion, cannot solve for you. And okay. so if you have only the arts and you don't have any validation, you go with your gut and that's very high risk. And conversely, as exciting as new technology like artificial intelligence might be, that is not a substitute for perception, again, for empathy, for emotions, for this connection that you need and for a, an understanding of culture, and I'm going back to uh, creating brands that are culturally relevant. All those things are things that science cannot do. Okay, interesting. Do you find yourself shifting your headspace, if you like, between the art and the science? Are you doing anything like writing a book, or have you sort of brought those together into one area of sort of one way of practicing? Yeah, I pride myself in reconciling the two. So we spoke about art and science, and you can also think in terms of academia versus the practitioner's world. So in academia, you have a lot of very good idea with validation that's not always robust because the sample and, I mean, the methodology is always very advanced, but the, the, the sample, the population, not so much. Conversely, with practitioners, you often have a lot of data, and yet you don't necessarily have strong um, academic theoretical foundations. So I can bring, I bring the two together. That's why I endeavor to do. That's the story of my life. Okay. Interesting. That's a good, that's an interesting, a big, a big bold life project, but it's, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting thing. So, okay. So you could have, this is interesting me around art science as a kind of approach to uh, how we think about brands. Um, let, let's dive into this thing of cultural relevance um, now. Is that something that you think is achievable for every brand in every sector? So I think that whether it's cultural relevance or purpose or sustainability, uh, it's not a cookie cutter approach. Not every brand needs to tick all the boxes, if that makes sense. So okay. it makes sense for some brands to be culturally relevant. It makes sense for some brands to have a purpose and to engage in an ESG mission and sustainability. And it makes sense for some brand to make a positive impact on the economy. That's not to say that all brands need to tick all boxes. And that's where we just want to be mindful, careful of those buzzwords around purpose. And uh, I'm also mindful of those case studies of such as Patagonia and REI. And look, those are great brands, but frankly, in my opinion, they're anecdotal in nature. So in short, it makes sense for a lot of brands to be culturally relevant. For brands that are emotionally charged, that often makes or breaks the deal. Having said this, 
for brands that um, have more of a functional component, it is not necessarily uh, the end-all be-all to be culturally relevant. In other words, uh, if you sell bleach or toothpaste, you don't necessarily need to obsess about culturally relevant. Uh, I'm sorry, cultural relevance. You may have some other drivers that are as important and in all likelihood more important. Uh, how do you start to tell, like if you're advising a brand leader for the first time, how do they tell which group they need to be in? How, how do they start their journey, if you like? Yeah, well, I want to understand in any given brand, uh, the function versus the emotion how much of the brand has to do with its functional aspect, features and benefits, if you will, and I'm not saying versus and the emotional components, what are the emotional uh, drivers? So that's a chapter in my book that's called Perception is the Truth. And mm -hmm. what are those emotional drivers, those emotional attributes? Then I want to understand where is the brand at in its environment? I'm not just talking market share, you know, but is the brand trying to be a luxury brand? Is the brand trying to be a, a brand that is attuned with culture? Is the brand going after a niche audience of blank? Is the brand going after a younger demographic of 18 to 34 and so on and so forth? What are you trying to achieve, right? Are you trying to expand your market share or are you trying to go up market and be very niche and so on and so forth? And then where is the brand in terms of its life cycle? The brand has a legacy or the brand is brand new to market or is the brand going through a revival? Think of Barbie. Barbie was very relevant 30 years ago and then they went through extensive financial troubles and today Barbie is going through a complete revival. So where are we at in this life cycle? And from there, we decide on a strategy of what, are the avenues we should pursue and therefore what are the attributes we want to develop? What is the territory we want to own? Because mm -hmm. it's interesting, I guess, like how you perceive the emotional charge relative to emotional charge. Because, you know, toothpaste is quite often the example that people give as like the kind of the kind of most mundane or products. And on the flip side, everyone goes for the Patagonia example as the most emotionally charged. But it's not immediately apparent that, if, you know, in the Patagonia case, the case study, the category of anoraks and outdoor clothing is going to be as emotionally charged as they as as they made it. So I guess it's interesting. How do you spot your opportunities in the culture? I mean, that like, like is it just a certain categories that will always be lacking in emotional charge, or is it something actually that the brand chooses to do or decides to do? Yeah, well, there are some categories that are highly functional in nature. Let's say bleach. Yeah, so you can develop okay. a sense of purpose around bleach, which is what Clorox does very very well. That said, the function here is overwhelming. And then I'll take the other extreme. If you're in high-end luxuries, there is a functional aspect in carrying a, a Louis Vuitton bag. And that said, you can carry your laptop in a bag from Tesco. And the functional aspect is the same. You can still carry your things in a plastic bag or paper bag that you get from Tesco, or you can spend yeah. 2,500 pounds in a Louis Vuitton bag. And so uh, high-end luxury goods are by nature emotionally charged. So what's more debatable are the brands that are in the middle. So if you think about um, headphones, 
Okay? Headphones, if you consider Sonos versus Beats versus Bang & Olufsen uh, versus Sony, for example. Well, here you have a functional aspect that's important. Obviously, it's sound, but you're going to have an emotional driver that is, how does this product and this brand make me feel? Where perception, building this perception is going to be so important is a vast majority of people who buy headphones don't try them before. Oh, and by the way, even if you do, very few people are going to benchmark Beats versus Sony versus Sonos versus Bang & Olufsen. So what we see, for example, in the U.S. is Beats has the second largest market share after Apple, and it turns out that Beats is an Apple brand, by the way, yet ranks sixth or seventh in terms of the quality of the sound. Conversely, someone like Bang & Olufsen is going to have great sound quality, yet they're at the bottom of the league table, even in terms of awareness, right? So what I mean by this is... That's what I mean by perception is the truth. You need to convert perception of quality and cultural relevance so that you can sell the product. You do not sell headphones for better or for worse. That's another debate. But you do not sell headphones based on the engineering, the quality of the sound. Yeah, okay. Part of the reason I'm interested in this is in the book and in your general work, your goal for a brand is really massive. A lot of people would sort of say you kind of expect the brand, the marketing operation to be talking about selling more products. You're, talk, you're saying that's not really enough for brands anymore and they need to have a bigger story uh, at least. So it's interesting in terms of how you find presumably some some kind of emotional purchase in that story. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so tell us more about that. So yeah. Why do you think that brands need to go beyond selling stuff? Because in most categories, you have so many products, so many brands, so many SKUs, go to any grocery store and look at how many brands of toothpaste and breakfast cereal you have access to. But that applies to, um, if you want to buy headphones, how many brands and how many SKUs you have that are available, go on Amazon and you'll have pages and pages of products. So how can you differentiate? And that's what I mean when I say brands can no longer just sell products. They must transform people and the world we live in. And so you have three avenues here is the personal, the social, and the cultural aspects. So the personal is, uh, so it's me, my world, and the world. Me is your personal identity project. Who am I and who do I want to become? And my world is my friends and family, my local community, the, the things and people I can touch, if you will. And the world is the world at large. So how can I, as a brand, make a positive impact on, again, we spoke about sustainability, but it might be education, it might be economic recovery, it might be helping with um, addressing inflation, for example. Brands can make a positive impact on the world. And so the brands that differentiate and that stand out are the brands that they can play in all three or they can make a difference in uh, one territory or another. Again, me, my world, and the world. So what I mean, we're going to go back to the headphone example because that hopefully is straightforward. Who am I and who do I want to become? So the functional aspect of headphones is the engineering, the quality of the sound. Look, that's great. But really, most people are not knowledgeable enough and or are not going to benchmark the engineering. 
the, the key is, who am I? Who do I want to become? How does the brand make me feel? The brand is here in a supporting role. The brand is not the hero. The hero is the individual, not even the consumer, the individual. As an individual, who do I want to become? Who do I project myself to be? The brand needs to take me to support my identity project and to transform me into whoever I want to become here. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. So tell me your, sort of your story here. So in terms of you sort of formalized all of this thinking and you decided to capture it all in a book, which some, some people have a massive ambition to do, some people it terrifies them. So what, what was the point at which you thought, actually, this all needs to come together into what turned into, at least, the book? Yeah, uh, doing a book is more manageable than most people think it is. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, and, and here is why. So many people want to write books and so many people are terrified of writing books because so many people believe, most people, uh, every week I hear someone who says, oh, I want to write a book. How do you do that? So the common assumption is you start with the introduction and you start writing on a blank page and um, you finish your book with writing the conclusion. That's not at all the way it works. Uh, first off, I read a lot. I read... I spend an hour to three hours every day just reading. And I read on weekends as well. And from there, I identify ideas. So when I say I read, of course, it has to do with articles and publications, but also the work we do with clients. And from there, I identify key ideas. And then I create flashcards. And then I organize those flashcards in key themes that will later become chapters. And then I start writing uh, different sections, different paragraphs, and then it all comes together like a puzzle. But the point being is like, when I did my doctorate, it was really the same thing. So writing a doctoral dissertation or writing a book or I guess creating a movie or a song is pretty much in my experience the same process. It's okay. bringing a lot of ideas together, organizing the ideas. And it's interesting to always editorialize that because it was interesting when our producer was building your profile on label sessions, she noted this thing. It's interesting in your process, there's almost like a bit of that mix of art and science on the basis of the quite intuitive process of reading, spotting things, but then quite exactly. a scientific process with the cards are kind of processing that into something you can share with the world through your writing. Does that, does that sound like it's a fair oh, thing to say? Very much so. And along those lines, Nick, in the book, I describe the process of copy, transform, combine. What this means is you write a book from other books. And so in branding, and the same applies in writing, in music, and in movies, and in cooking, we don't reinvent the wheel every morning, nor do we have to. We copy, transform, and combine different ideas coming from different cultures, from different streams of research, and we repurpose and reorganize this into a, a new idea. That's how cooking works. That's how music works and so on and so forth. And I think in branding too often, 
Well, clients think that they have to reinvent the wheel and talk to advertising agencies that pretend to reinvent the wheel. And maybe what I'm saying is counterintuitive, but I really don't think you have to. I think you have to, again, copy, transform, and combine ideas that are relevant, that are around you, repurpose them into something that's going to work for your brand and your market. I want to pick up on that, actually, because one of the things that's really interesting in my role was I spend a lot of the time with leaders, and quite often, you know, my background is branding and marketing, essentially, so mm-hmm. you kind of speak to the CMO quite often, but I also speak to the CTO and CEOs, some of the people from other backgrounds, and there is a kind of cynicism, maybe, in business culture just now around the quality of insight that sits around brand branding and brand strategy in general, mm-hmm. um, and I was, I was wondering your perspective on that, on the sense of, do you think that there is a lot of nonsense essentially spoken around the subject of, of branding and insight within organizations. Um, and therefore, there's some kind of fairness in some of the accusations of of our kind of broader world. Or do you think it's kind of unfair and people aren't giving credit to the work that's going on day to day inside organizations? Yeah, I think that neither extreme would be healthy, whereby should you base all your decision on Consumer insights, certainly not. And, and again, it depends on the category, meaning in technology, for example, people don't have a vision for what they will want, right? And in that regard, that's where, let's say, Apple and Steve Jobs was very, very good because if you ask people what they want in terms of technology, you, you'll end up with 500 features, including 497 that nobody would ever use. Uh, and so... Making all your decisions based on consumer insights, frankly, I think would be misleading. Conversely, those insights are here to mitigate risk. So we cannot, uh, I don't, well, we cannot. I don't think exclusively in terms of guidance. I also think in terms of mitigating risk. So the insights often, they might here to give you some leads, some ideas on what to do next. And importantly, they tell you what not to do. So it's really this balance of the two. So conversely, Nick, I, I see where you're going with this. Conversely, the, what we had in the 90s and 2000s with um, the, the creative agencies and the copywriters showing up at 11 a.m. and uh, playing foosball for two hours before writing an idea at the back of a napkin and selling this for 15 million pounds to whatever client, uh, I, I don't believe in that approach either. It just doesn't work anymore. So okay. you, need, you need the idea and you need the, the insights to back it up. Okay. I, I just want to give you one more hard case before we go into some fun questions. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that a lot of the label sessions presents podcast listeners and equally a lot of our clients face into is one of these kind of hard cases, which is what you do when you're, you're no longer, you're not a startup anymore creating a new brand you're maybe a new leader taking over an established brand that will ha- ha- be in some way successful because there's, there's some reason why it's a big brand that it's kind of, it's operating in multiple markets and such like. But you know intuitively there's a much bigger opportunity if you change. And therefore, how do you start to think around how do we understand where we're genuinely strong, what our strengths are and how we preserve them perhaps. Uh, and then also how we go into this new space. So what are some of the things you'd have front of mind for a leader that's in that space when you've got an established brand that is successful, but you're trying to work out how do I take the new opportunity and go after and and appear a different way, be perceived a different way without completely alienating 
the customer customers we we already have, but also the, the the workforce that I already have that bought into the employer brand that we had before. What what are some of the kind of key key things on your list of, of sort of advice for those for those kinds of leaders? Yeah, well, by the way, that's often the most difficult thing to do. It's not necessarily to get started. It's uh, stage two, I would say. That is, well, now that I have a core audience and that I appeal to a niche, how do I go after a larger market? So the answer will be. What are not just the demographics, but importantly, the psychographics I can appeal to. So if I look at my success, I might have success with a niche audience of people, not just, again, demographics are fine, but what are the, the beliefs, the attitudes, the cultural attributes of these people? And from there, how can I expand uh, towards new audience segments that share some similar aspirations with this core audience. Okay. Okay. So it's quite quite, quite clear cut. So gonna find, and it's interesting, sort of spotting the aspirations rather than the needs, which is quite often where a lot of people go. Aspirations yeah. is an interesting idea to pick up. Yeah. I mean, the needs. Um, why not? The, the the thing with the needs is it implies that you know what you need, and it implies that you need something in the first place. And uh, again. It's, um, of course, a limitation, it goes without saying, but a limitation of our conversation, Nick, is uh, we're, we're having to make both statements, right, uh, regardless of the brand and regardless of the vertical. Again, if we go back to technology or if we go back to headphones, for example, you know, how badly do you really need absolutely a new pair of headphones? And in many categories, once you acquire a product, you're going to keep it for years this doesn't apply to fast-moving consumer goods, but it applies to technology. It applies to a lot of lifestyle items. It applies to fashion. It applies to beauty and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. what we are going to want to latch on as brand owners is an aspiration, a jobs to be done, an identity project, a mission that I want to accomplish rather than a functional need. Not rather than, but beyond just a functional need. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I see that a lot with people looking at ESG brands or sustainable brands as well. And there's this key thing where they keep on latching on to this idea of we need to identify what the key customer needs are without facing into people don't necessarily have a fundamental need to transform their home to make it more sustainable. They might well have an aspiration to you. They might well join your mission to you. But it's an interesting point, especially for leaders that are kind of trained on this design thinking approach that kind of wants to deconstruct everything in a way that the process understands. Yeah, and sustainability is the new buzzword. We, we see in our studies at Ipsos that uh, in very few categories, among very few audience segments, is sustainability uh, the leader? Is sustainability the most important thing, number one, when you make a decision? Most of the time, it's a co-benefit. So mm. you're going to buy a product because or you're going to choose a brand because it is rewarding to you in one fashion or another. And a co-benefit is that the brand is demonstrating sustainability and through this purchase, you as a consumer will demonstrate a sustainable behavior. But in very few categories, is sustainability the number one driver? Yeah, okay. 
Okay, so lots of really interesting topics there. I'm now going to go for some quick fire questions just to get your sort of top of mind responses, partly so we get to know you a little bit as well as some of the topics that we've spoken about. Yeah. Um, so the first one we've almost half gone to, where do you go to feed your creative brain? Oh, tons of publications. Um, um, so major media outlets like Adweek, Campaign, AdAge, also what extensive white papers from agencies, Ogilvy, Edelman, Windham and Thompson, of course, Ipsos, of course, Kantar. Um, academic literature, uh, uh, at hand here, I have some, I, I print publications and I um, uh, carefully review academic papers. I, I read some every week. Uh, then foundational knowledge. This is from the IPA, for example, the long and short of it. It's a very important publication on uh, how you should balance short and long-term marketing strategies. Uh, my students as well, and frankly, that's why I okay. teach. They keep me honest and I test ideas. So in um, my new book, Assemblage, I mean, I wrote uh, another book before, Brand Hacks, but in my new book, Assemblage, you have, I think, 240, I think it's 246 references. So I okay. read as wide as I can. And... I I that done your whole life. That's the interesting thing as well. So you have done that since since being a sixteen year old. You've been like across the yeah. publications and things. It's interesting. It's like a, in your DNA somehow. Yeah, and then and uh, that's the last chapter of the book. I call them the assemblers. I look at how other people in other industries do things. Uh, in cooking, for you to be Gordon Ramsay, it's going to be Alain Ducasse. In the arts, in EDM music, for you it's going to be. When I say for you, I'm trying to come up with. Uh, uh, UK right so think of Calvin Harris I think he's Scottish by the way uh, Adam Wales yes. Calvin Harris yeah so by definition EDM is about assembling music okay by definition you create music from samples from other influences so uh, DJ Khaled Pharrell Williams how do these people work from there how can we apply those concepts or those ways of working to building brands so that's that's my process Okay, so that's all very uh, positive and sort of planned. Do you ever catch yourself procrastinating and where do you go? I do catch myself procrastinating. I'm giving you an honest answer because I need to feel the pressure to um, get the work done. And just like writing a book, then I break it down in smaller segments. So let's say last week I had to build a deck for a prospect. It's not a client yet. It's a prospect. It's a major movie studio. And the truth is, I had that post-it that I had to do that deck. I, I had it on my screen for like two weeks. Uh, but I broke it down in what are the three, four, five, six ideas I'm going to start with. Next, what are the three, four, five, six references that are going to support that thinking? Next, what evidence do I have? What can I work from so that I don't start from scratch? And uh, again, just like writing a book, it's foolish to think that uh, you you start in the morning and you finish by 5 p.m. It's, can I gather some ideas? Next, I start writing. Next, I do the editing. Next, the second round of editing. So it's three, four steps. So to address procrastination, to make, why do we procrastinate? Because we make those tasks daunting and we make them bigger than they really are. If I break it down, in three, four steps of that process, it feels a lot more achievable. 
Okay, that's interesting. Let's, let's see a different part of your brain now. Uh, what makes someone a good travel companion? Curiosity. Okay. Do you want to discover new things? Do you want okay. to discover new neighborhoods, new art, new music, new types of cooking, new photography? Okay. This sounds like someone who's going to come with you on the journey because you, you strike me as quite a curious person yourself. So you, uh, you, you want someone to be your accomplice in the curious tour of the of a new place. Okay, that, that, that's good. Um, this is a hard one for you, given you're a brand guy. If you if you were a brand personally, which brand would you be? I am a brand personally. So you'd be your own. I I I, I believe that people, along with uh, so brands are brands. That goes without saying. But also government agencies are brands. Uh, cities are brands, politicians are brands, athletes are brands, musicians are brands, and to a much smaller extent, we are, are brands made of uh, functional attributes, but also emotional attributes. My functional attributes is I believe that I'm knowledgeable, I'm qualified, I, I hold both an MBA and a doctoral degree, I, I write books. Well, that's great. Those are, are functional features. And then there are some emotional attributes whereby hopefully people align with uh, my appetite for curiosity, for exploring where we can take your brand as a client and um, relatable in terms of who am I and who do I want to become? Can we do this with your brand as well? Okay, interesting. Uh, if you were to write a biography, you may do at some point, what would the title be? Of the Upward Spiral. The Upward Spiral. The upward spiral. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And that's, why? That's, that's, yeah, go on. Go on. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I teach at UCLA, which is a top-tier university in the U.S. That said, it's 3,500 of us teaching at UCLA. And the honest truth is, out of 3,500, at least 2,500 of them publish more than I do and are more qualified than I am. And then I'm a senior executive at Ipsos, which is the largest publicly owned market research firm in the world. And I'm very knowledgeable in methodology. With that said, Ipsos employs 17,000 people and a good 10,000 of them know at least as much about methodology as I do. And then I write books. And sure, you know, I have some key endorsements from the like of, likes of Jonah Berger and Rory Sutherland and David Acker. They're all on the covers of, of my books. And that's great. The truth is, uh, a lot of people write more books and sell more books than I do. However, what I bring to the table is I combine all three. So now, as a client, as a brand, can you find someone who has written more books and has more global visibility? Absolutely, you can, um, assuming you can afford the talent. Can you find someone in an agency with more credentials, more methodological expertise than I absolutely. And can you find an academic with more publications? Hell yes, you can. The question is, are you going to find someone who is going to combine all three? Are you going to find someone who is going to balance this evidence, this science with the art that is the perception, the empathy, and the vision? And so that's what I bring to the table. Okay, interesting. And then the final one is a question we ask everybody who comes onto the podcast and everybody joins the label at some point. Uh, on a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? 8.5. Precise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
but and, and I embrace my wellness. Um, do you want me to elaborate on that? Well, I mean, you can do. I mean, it was great, but it was it was good. The eight point five by itself was great, yeah. but like, uh, did, did, is there a logic in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm weird because I get very interested in brands. I get very interested in uh, specific topics. Uh, we spoke about personal branding earlier. For example, I'm very interested to see how politicians develop their personal brands. All politics aside, your your opinions, I I, I always respect. Uh, and so as such, I get very interested in one topic, one brand, one specific culture or another. And why do people do what they do and how do we comment value from that? And I find it fascinating. And I, I realize that this is quite weird. I can spend uh, two, three minutes at the shelf in a store comparing brands and trying to understand why I'm going to choose Maltesers versus... Uh, another brand, right? I'm the only one doing that, but I embrace it. I think we absolutely have to embrace it. It's part of the reason we asked the question as well, because like if you're looking for people who can unblock you on a problem, then by the nature of it, you don't need more normal people because you've already had all the normal thinking. And so how can you introduce someone into a situation who will ask a weird question or look at something in a weird way? That's what you actually, that's what you actually need. Mm, absolutely. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.